Hello, and welcome to the first edition of the Macworld Geek Factor podcast for April 2005. My name is Saroos Faravar. The Geek Factor podcast is a new project that we're trying out here at Macworld. We sort of see it as an audio complement to the magazine, the Geek Factor section of the magazine. And uh, we're going to be talking about some things that maybe we don't really have the space or the time or whatever to talk about directly in the magazine. Uh, so sometimes the editions won't necessarily match uh, the subject in the magazine, but maybe sometimes they will. As I said, this is more of an experiment than anything else. We are going to be talking about Bluetooth today, and we have an interview with Glenn Fleischman coming up. Uh, contributor to Macworld and columnist at the Seattle Times. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Saroos Farvar, as I said. I'm a freelance technology journalist. I've written for Macworld and the New York Times and Wired and Wired News and Smothers. I am a big Mac geek myself. I have used pretty much every Mac since the original 128K. In fact, my, my greatest claim to fame about the 128K is that I still have the original brochure from that, um, the box that it came in. And uh, I also once turned my Performa 6115 into a glorified DSL router, which routed DSL through my parents' house in near Los Angeles. But... Um, and last year, I wrote an article for Macworld about how to install KDE to a Mac. Uh, some of you may remember that from the August 2004 issue. So that's sort of a little bit about me, but let's get right into it, shall we? So I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit about my own adventures with Bluetooth. I dabbled first in Bluetooth uh, when I had both a Bluetooth-enabled uh, PowerBook about 18 months ago, and I had my first Bluetooth-enabled cell phone. And uh, the PowerBook had built-in Bluetooth. And I was sort of, you know, messing around with it, and I, I was trying to figure out what it was good for. And, and it became pretty obvious that, you know, I could use the iSync application to sync up my iCal uh, on my laptop with the calendar that's built into my cell phone. My cell phone, by the way, is an Ericsson T610. And so that was pretty useful. You could you could you know keep your your contacts and the address book synced up, and that was kind of neat. You know, I was looking for something a little bit more, um, and uh, so I ended up going to the web and and looking at Version Tracker, the VersionTracker.com website, and trying to see what sort of applications were available for Bluetooth, uh, you know, to make your sort of Bluetooth experience, as it were, more useful. And so I came across um, a couple of programs. Um, one is a program called Sawing Clicker, uh, which is done by some developers out in Sweden. Uh, and it's a piece of shareware that you can get. It was actually named, um, if I remember correctly, as a... Um, uh, it won an, an Eddie Award, Macworld Eddie Award, uh, a couple of years ago. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty neat piece of software. Basically what it does is it installs... And depending on your model of your phone, you might need to, in, when you download the program, you might need to install some additional uh, software directly to the phone. In my case, uh, it was just um, installing the software to my Mac, and then it worked fine from there. But uh, check the show notes. We'll have a, we'll have a list uh, up there um, about whether or not you need the additional install package. 
anyway, so I went ahead and I went ahead and, and installed that, and um, it's a pretty neat program. Basically, what it does is it transforms your cell phone into a remote control, um, and you can use it to control different applications on your Mac, like for example iTunes or the DVD player, or say your mail client or whatever else. Uh, basically, the way it does that is it is it uses um, some Apple scripts that they've put together um, to you know talk to different applications and saying you know when you press this button then it does that and, and whatever. So so that was pretty cool and uh, so you can like so for example uh, so Bluetooth has like a range of 30 feet I guess or something like that and um, you can sort of you know walk around your room or your apartment. Uh, with your cell phone and control your iTunes, you know, it'd probably be good at parties and stuff. For me, yeah, it, it was kind of a neat feature, but I didn't really find myself, I couldn't think of, like, actually when, in, like, a real-life situation, when I would be using that. Um, I guess also, if you're if you're a business guy, you know, and you make a lot of PowerPoint or keynote presentations, you could use it for that to, you know, advance slides, or for pho- photography slideshows, I guess it's useful for that, too. But I don't really do much of that, so that wasn't really all that useful for me. Um, but yeah, so Sawing Clicker is a neat program. Um, one of the cool things that uh, that Sawing Clicker has also is... Um, when it when you're using it for uh, to control iTunes, for example, it actually displays the title track of the song and the artist and the elapsed time both on the computer screen and on the cell phone screen. So that way you can sort of keep track of what's what and how much time has passed and all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of cool. Sawing Clicker is a shareware program. I believe it's like twenty or thirty dollars. I don't know. It wasn't really obvious um, in the program. Uh, or on their website, how much it costs, but but probably it's in that neighborhood. However, there is a free alternative to Solling Clicker. There's a program called Romeo, um, which does a lot of the same things that Solling Clicker does. The only difference is is that Romeo doesn't have Romeo doesn't have the cool like you know displaying the song names and all that stuff. So that's too bad. But Romeo does it doesn't come with pre-written scripts for uh, pre-written Apple scripts for as many different applications as I mentioned Solling Clicker comes with ones for PowerPoint and Mail and Net Newswire and DVD player and VLC and QuickTime and all those Romeo comes with a few like you know iTunes and DVD player but uh, so that's good so but it it does have the option that you can edit new ones if you're familiar with Apple script you can sort of make your own roll your own uh uh, Apple scripts and 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 make your Bluetooth phone do do crazy things. Yeah, as I mentioned, so I had that before when I had my PowerBook. Now I I I sold the PowerBook uh, almost a year ago, and I ended up getting an iBook instead. And my new iBook doesn't have Bluetooth built into it. And so as I was doing this podcast, I was like, well, maybe I should sort of try and figure out what you know you would do in the case of you know you were someone who maybe didn't get Bluetooth when you first got your Mac. Um, and you wanted it now, you know, later in retrospect. So I started looking around online, um, trying to figure out what was out there in terms of how to install uh, Bluetooth to a laptop. Installing Bluetooth to a desktop is relatively easy, I guess, if you can get a hold of a uh, Bluetooth module um, for, like, for example, for a G5 tower. You know, sometimes you can get those at, at computer at computer shops. I don't know if you can order them directly from Apple or if they even sell them in, like, the Apple stores, but um, there are a few web pages out there linked on the show notes that show how to do that, but I'm going to be primarily talking about 
what to do if you have a laptop. So basically, you know, with a laptop, when you, if you want to, as I said, retroactively add Bluetooth, I figured, well, maybe you can buy the chip or, or card or whatever it is and, and put it in, you know, like RAM. Turns out that's not really the case. Uh, I don't know if Bluetooth comes pre-soldered onto the board uh, when you order it, and so it has to be, you know, put together at when when the computer is actually built or what. But uh, for some reason, you can't. It seems pretty much impossible to add an internal module to a PowerBook or iBook retroactively. So the other option is to get um, a USB dongle, Bluetooth dongle, which is just like a little USB device that kind of looks like a flash drive that plugs in right onto the side of your laptop. Those things, you know, are really small. They're like a, maybe an inch long or something. It's just like a little USB thing. The most common ones, the company D-Link that also makes Wi-Fi equipment and some other stuff, they make them and they sell them for about 40 bucks. You can get them anywhere at the Apple Store, the Apple Online Store. Most uh, big retail stores like Fry's in California uh, would have them. JNR, I know in New York, has them. They're pretty common. And so, you know, you, you pick up one of those, and you pop that into your USB port, and it's really slick. It, it recognizes it automatically. You may need to go and run your Apple system software update and make sure you have the right kind of firmware and stuff, but it doesn't need any special drivers or whatever. It, it should just work straight out of the box. So that's kind of cool. There are also some other kind of random, more generic ones. Orange Micro, I know, makes some of these. There are some other ones, but the, the D-Link one seems to be the most common. However, um, there is a guy that I, I, I found a web page as I was, you know, Googling for different permutations of Bluetooth and, and iBooks and stuff, and I came up with this web page that's linked on the show notes uh, that's called Apple iBook Bluetooth Installation, and under that it says, Not for the Faint of Heart. So this is this guy named Timothy who put together a web page detailing how he took one of these USB dongles and actually installed it inside of his iBook, which is kind of kind of cool. Basically what he did is he, he wired the, the USB nub that comes out of the dongle and wired it directly to the USB ports on the motherboard inside his computer. So that's pretty cool. Because that takes away, you know, having to have it sort of dangle off to the side of your laptop and just, you know, having it worried about being snapped off or whatever. The only problem is, is that, of course, then that means that that USB port is no longer in use. So basically he has one instead of two USB ports that are available to him because one of them is being taken up internally by the Bluetooth device. Uh, so that's kind of cool. So again, links on the show notes, so you can check that out. Pretty neat stuff. So yeah, so that was sort of my adventures in dabbling in uh, Bluetooth and figuring out what it's all for. I sort of came to the determination that for me, as you know, a journalist um, who sort of you know, I like you know all this kind of stuff. I, I use these uh, devices. I love playing with them, but it didn't seem like Bluetooth was something that, as far as wanting to connect my Mac to my phone would be concerned, like, you know, using it as a remote control. That's not something that I really see myself doing, but I guess there are people out there who do. Um, so, you know, have fun if, if that's what you're into. <laughs> um, um, but, I mean, I was trying to think, the only real application that I think for me Bluetooth would have would be to get one of those cell phone headsets um, that are out there, you know, that you connect 
it just, you know, you wear a little earpiece and then that connects via Bluetooth to your phone and that way you don't have cords to deal with and you can just talk normally. You don't have to be cramped like I am every time I talk on the phone. And as a journalist, I could see that would be useful. Uh, but as for regular computer Bluetooth, there isn't really a compelling reason for me uh, why I would need it. But maybe maybe you guys have uh, have different stories. I'd be curious to hear what you're doing with it. So that's sort of where Bluetooth is now as far as the devices are concerned and sort of what you can what you can do with it. I had a conversation with uh, Glenn Fleischman over Skype, who is a freelance technology journalist, and he writes for, the, he's a columnist for the Seattle Times, he's also a frequent contributor to Macworld Magazine and to the New York Times, and so I had a great chat with him about the future of Bluetooth and an upcoming version of Bluetooth known as Bluetooth 2.0. So, hope you enjoy that. So, Glenn, uh, can you give us a little rundown on what's happening with Bluetooth 2.0? Well, the, the issue is uh, last year, um, the Bluetooth SIGs uh, standard is that at least three companies have to be able to demonstrate compliance um, in silicon. So, there has to be three chip makers who can come to them and show that they have, have uh, reference designs that work. They don't have to be, you know, in production, but uh, but that's the standard. So uh, Cambridge, uh, I think it's CSR's name, Cambridge Silicon Radio, they came out with the first sets of chips a few months ago, and Apple based their Bluetooth 2.0 on uh, on Cambridge's chips, and uh, and Dell will have a new module as well based on the same chips. So I've actually been surprised that it hasn't hit the market faster because there's two other manufacturers that are obviously have equipment or have chips that should be in production. Uh, so I would expect a big rush into Bluetooth 2.0 in the next few months. Um, what the Bluetooth SIG said to me, and I, I think this is pretty accurate, is that what will happen first is that uh, laptops, especially and desktops, will get upgraded to um, the ones that include Bluetooth as an option or built in, like Apple's whole lineup, will get upgraded to 2.0 first. And so Apple's on the leading edge of that trend. And then once there's enough equipment out there with the number of laptops that ship, you could have millions of devices with Bluetooth 2.0 by you know June or July. Then you'll start seeing peripherals that take advantage of the new standard. And one of the good things about Bluetooth 2.0 is that it's a pretty simple upgrade. It's not um, an entirely new design for makers of equipment. So really, they have to figure out how to integrate the new chips, <coughs> Excuse me, um, but they don't have to, say, completely redesign everything from scratch. Or that, that's what I've been told. Now, will the Bluetooth 2.0 devices be backwards compatible? That's what they say. And of course, the big issue is if you have some Bluetooth 1.1 or 1.2 devices on a network, or even 1.0, which are a little rare, actually, um, and you're using Bluetooth 2.0, the 1.0x devices are going to slow down the network. I mean, this is the same principle that happens in Wi-Fi if you have 802.11b and 802.11g, you know, airport and airport extreme on the same network. The slower device takes longer to say the same thing. It actually uses more bandwidth, more signal space to say the same amount of information. So the same thing is true with Bluetooth. If I'm using a, an older keyboard and a newer set of stereo headphones, the keyboard will take three times as much airspace to say the same amount of data. But I, I think people are going to wind up using more advanced devices than a Bluetooth 2.0 like stereo headsets. So the keyboard uses a relatively tiny amount of, of bandwidth and the headsets use a lot. So if they can talk faster and the keyboard talks slower, you'll still get the benefit of having Bluetooth 2.0. It won't be entirely restricted to only um, to only if you switch everything to Bluetooth 2.0. So would you only see the advantage in something that requires the increased bandwidth, like a cell phone headset? Well, I think that's right. I think that's going to be one of the tricky points is that all the cell phones have to be updated. I mean, how many hundreds of millions of cell phones have Bluetooth now? I, I think it's 
I think the industry estimates are that it's topped 100 million. So, um, you know, there'll be there'll be billions more cell phones sold in the next years that have Bluetooth 2.0 in them, but you're not going to get the advantage until that's updated. I, I think there's also, I think what you're pointing out, uh, probably indirectly, is that uh, the processor power, the network, uh, or the, I should say network, but the, uh, the uh, well, I guess it is network bandwidth that a cell phone has is often pretty restrictive. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the numbers where you take a Palm handheld, even the current generation ones, you put it on a Wi-Fi network running at 54 megabits per second, and maybe it pushes a few hundred kilobits per second or a meg per second over that network. The same thing is true with cell phones, is they have relatively restricted computational power and network control. It's going to get better over time, but even if you have Bluetooth 2.0 in, I don't know if the cell phones will keep up uh, with that rate. It, it'll still make it faster. It's certainly Bluetooth 1.x was restricting the data rate, but I don't know if you're going to see the full speed there. The, the related thing, actually, is that cell phones, we're going to start seeing cell phones that can talk 2 megabits per second to a cellular data network. Uh, there's a standard called EVDO, or uh, Evolution Data Only. It's uh, it's being widely deployed by Verizon Wireless around the United States, and it can peak at speeds up to 2 megabits per second. So you want to have a, a cell phone that has Bluetooth 2.0 plus EDR, enhanced data rate, built in to take the full advantage of the peak speeds on a on a EVDO network. So that, that's certainly one of the driving factors, too, for the cell phone makers. Is that a faster version of the existing CDMA data network? Yeah, I mean, CDMA is, you know, sort of, uh, I think, second generation, and uh, uh, EVDO is third generation, or 3G. There's some bridging standards, like uh, one's called 1XRTT, just to, you know, love all these acronyms. But RT, 1XRTT runs at about... 50 to 100 kilobits per second, so still well within, you know, USB 1.1 speeds or, I mean, which was, you know, 12 megabits per second or Bluetooth 1.x, not a problem. But but the cell makers, the cell operators are really pushing these faster speeds. Uh, Singular, uh, which uses the GSM network standard that's popular throughout the rest of the world, Singular will be deploying something called HSDPA, <laughs> just great acronym, um, which will run, they expect the low, the slow rates will be hundreds of kilobits per second and the fast rates will actually be, uh, you'll regularly get a megabit per second or more over an HSDPA network. So when you start seeing things like that, then Bluetooth 2.0 makes a lot more sense. It doesn't seem like a big upgrade, but what they're trying to do is make sure there's enough bandwidth in the phones, especially, to carry out anything that's going to happen in the next couple years on the 3G networks. Uh, I mean, there's a combination of interesting things is you could have cell data standards built into headsets and have them be able to pick up music, you know, over a cell network. I mean, uh, Verizon's already shipping a product that lets you do uh, short video streams at apparently very high quality on a, on a uh, you know, a little cell phone that's more like a PDA than a cell phone. So you'll have actually a lot of hybrid devices that conceivably with what the chip makers are talking about, you'll there'll be one chip that might do Wi-Fi, cellular standards, including these faster ones, and Bluetooth 2.0, completely integrated into a single chip or two chips. So you might buy a consumer device and have all of these standards built in, and whatever's available, you'll use. And Bluetooth would be one of those options for communicating or synchronizing if it's available. Cellular would be another option. So you might be able to use this a device, you know, a handheld that has that. Your laptop could use it to communicate out to the cell network using Bluetooth between the handheld and the laptop. And so there's a, there's a a lot of really baroque choices that'll that'll come out as more wireless standards are built into um, a greater variety built into single chips. Do you know how existing Apple users who have iBooks and PowerBooks would go about upgrading their Bluetooth modules? 
Well, sure. I mean, they're you know they're saying, stating very clearly that nothing else that they have, nothing out there that was sold before this new PowerBook refresh can be upgraded internally to the new standard. It's different actual silicon. I mean, there's it's funny these days we expect everything to be firmware upgraded because so much can be done with software instructions. But the way the Bluetooth radios are built, it's actually a physical change in how the radio works uh, inside the silicon uh, chip. So. Um, the, what existing Apple users will be able to do is very likely within, I'm sure within six months, maybe within two or three months, a company uh, like D-Link, or, which has been selling the USB adapter for Apple for a long time, will sell a USB dongle that plugs in and will do, uh, it'll be a USB 2.0 dongle very likely because everything's 2.0 now, and it'll, it'll offer Bluetooth, and it might even offer some more advanced functions like being a Bluetooth hub or, or something that would allow a, a more robust Bluetooth communications. But, but anybody who has a machine that was sold to them before Apple started putting 2.0 plus EDR into the laptops will very likely, if they want it, are, they're going to have to get a USB dongle or a USB uh, a stub that does Bluetooth 2.0. So do you feel like Bluetooth is now getting to the point where it's useful not just to the sort of geek techno crowd but also to the mainstream? Well, I think it's my, my big interest in Bluetooth over the years has been it's been the uh, the almost ready for prime time standard forever, and it's you know, and and you can buy. I mean, I think very conservatively, there's somewhere between 100 million and 200 million devices on the planet right now that have Bluetooth in some version built in. <clears throat> and the thing is, I think Bluetooth 2.0 is actually the mature version. It's what people are waiting for. It's enough speed to be useful. It's got a number of small technical improvements that people have been asking for. I think on security side, the last remaining piece is making it simpler. And the Bluetooth say is well aware that the pairing process for Bluetooth is pretty insane compared to like joining a Wi-Fi network. You join a Wi-Fi network, you select it, you enter a password, and you're on. And there's a lot of stuff that happens on the network side that you as a user don't have to deal with. And the Bluetooth people always thought, well, there's all this network overhead. That's bad for people. That We have a very simple network structure. But in fact, it's so invisible that what their next goal really is to make it easier to connect Bluetooth devices to a network. And, and that could actually produce a renaissance in, uh, in Bluetooth usage when it's just, you know, a kind of a click and play as opposed to, uh, I've written some books in which I have uh, 14 points in order to connect a Bluetooth device to another computer. <laughs> Do you think that Bluetooth 2.0 will be much more expensive than the existing devices? Well, it's going to be... I don't think they can push that very far. Um, it'll certainly be slightly more expensive, but I think you'll more likely see all the existing devices that use Bluetooth 1.x, if they're low data rate devices, like we were talking about with like a keyboard or a mouse, those devices might continue using Bluetooth 1.x indefinitely because there's not enough advantage for them to run faster. They're going to have less interference on Bluetooth 2.0 networks because there'll be more bandwidth available to them. What you'll see is new devices introduced into the market like a Bluetooth, like a high-quality stereo headset for uh, earphones for listening to music, and those will cost more because they're new devices, and they can hide a little of the extra cost of Bluetooth 2.0 inside that. But I, I think the, the variation in price will drop within a year for the same device with 1.x and 2.0 because consumers, I don't think, are visualizing 2.0 as a premium product for themselves. Maybe early adopters will think about it, but really the same products may be sold with, with 1.x now and 2.0 in six months, so it's going to be hard to justify to those consumers charging anything more than they charge now. 
Yeah, because, you know, I have a, I know that I have a Bluetooth phone, but my iBook doesn't have a Bluetooth module, um, because, you know, I can't really justify spending the extra money just so I can sync my phone to iCal on my computer, you know, but I did get one for the purposes of, of doing this podcast to test it out. But, you know, ordinarily I wouldn't have one. That's right, and they have to, I think what has to happen is there has to be something compelling that makes you jump. I mean, if you got a new phone, if you got suddenly bought EVDO service from Verizon, you might say, you know, I, I could actually, you might do some DSL tests, or, or not DSL tests, but you go to dslreports.com and do the bandwidth tests, and you're on your EVDO phone, and you had, let's say you had a 1.x Bluetooth module for your iBook, and you're watching the thing clip off at 700 kilobits per second, whatever the real top throughput of Bluetooth 1x is, and let's say you tried it with another device and you could see peaks of 1.5 or 2 megabits per second, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to get a 2.0 module. So something like that, or, or you're going to find a headset, you, uh, you know, a wireless uh, stereo headset that you really want, and it's going to be 2.0 only, and you're going to go and spend the 75 bucks for a 2.0 dongle or whatever it will cost, probably about, about that, because you're going to want that new device. I mean, of course, they have to get products out in the marketplace that drive people to go through the pain of adding equipment to their to their existing computers and making sure it all works together. But it's it's interesting. I mean, I I really thought Bluetooth was going to die a couple of years ago, and instead they have managed to make it to keep that niche growing. And and it took a long time. Cell makers, uh, cell phone handset makers, took a long time to really embrace Bluetooth as fully. Um, there's a really subtle thing, which is that there was Bluetooth 1.0, 1.1, and 1.2, and a lot of the handset makers didn't like 1.0. A lot of equipment makers did not like Bluetooth 1.0. It had a lot of problems. 1.1 was a really good update, and that's when you started seeing it equipment. And 1.2 included uh, the code that allowed, or the algorithms that allowed it to not interfere with Wi-Fi or be interfered with by Wi-Fi. That was a huge improvement. It required an FCC decision in the U.S. to even allow that update to happen. So that was one of the reasons that Bluetooth uh, took so long, I think, to find its way into more equipment. But once that hit, I think uh, all the companies that wanted a USB-free solution started uh, jumping on, on uh, Bluetooth in a big way. Well, Glenn, we really appreciate you ha- you being on the show, and we hope you come back again soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate being asked. So that's our show for the day. We had a very interesting discussion about Bluetooth, uh, and we'll be looking forward to next edition of the Macworld Geek Factor podcast, uh, where we talk about Newtons and who's still using them and what the heck are they still good for today. So thanks again for listening. Once again, I'm Sarus Faravar, and this is the Macworld Geek Factor Podcast. <laughs>